I invite you to open up in your copy of the scripture uh, to the Gospel of Mark. Once again, we are in chapter 9, chapter 9 this morning, and we're going to be looking at verses 14 to 29. This is sort of a, a longer account, so I really do encourage you to, to have a Bible in front of you. Uh, there should be one in front of uh, the chairs there if you don't have one of your own with you this morning, or you can look it up on your device. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14. And uh, just so that we remember where we are in this gospel, if you remember last week, uh, Peter, James, and John went up on a high mountain with Jesus, and they had this incredible experience where Jesus' transcendent glory was revealed to them in the transfiguration. And now they're back down the mountain, and they are faced, unfortunately, with the real world, snap back to reality. Uh, here we are, back in a world where things aren't going so well. Uh, let me start reading in verse 14 of what their immediate experience is when they come down from the mountain. It says, when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us. And help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Father, as we take a look at these truths here in this text, we pray that you would teach us what it means to place our trust in the Lord Jesus alone and not to rely upon ourselves. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. 
I don't know if you noticed it, but in that last hymn that we just sang, one of the ways that Jesus is described is as the great physician. Jesus is the great physician. Now, I'm told that med students in their last year of med school, they undergo an internship within the actual medical field to get hands-on experience of the real-world experience of medical practice. Not that they would just stay in the theoretical uh, world of the classroom, but that they would get hands-on experience of what to expect in the medical practice. Well, this morning, we're going to have ourselves a little half-hour-long internship under the great physician in the clinic of Christ. I hope you brought your scrubs. Uh, We are going to see from him how he handles this particular case of this little boy and what real life looks like under the care of the great physician in a broken world. Because, of course, we as Christians, we live in the real world. Uh, We should be the greatest realists of all people because we are under no illusion of the evil that resides within us and the evil that surrounds us. We live in the real world even as we long for the next world. And the disciples, Peter, James, and John, they have come down from the mountain and entered back into reality. What did they immediately face when they come down from the mountain after the great transfiguration? They immediately see that the scribes and the disciples are fighting with one another, and they're faced with a little boy who is very sick, and into the real world where godly people fight with one another, and where children suffer. So let's enter into this internship with the great physician, and what do we see first? We're going to take a look first at the patient, and we're going to see his diagnosis and symptoms. Who is the patient in this passage? It's a little boy, and what's his diagnosis? He is demon-possessed. He is experiencing spiritual oppression. Now, we said this earlier when we were studying the gospel, but we, we should rehearse it again. The truth that Satan hates nothing more than God. He despises God. And if there's anything that ranks just below his hatred for God, it is his hatred of us as human beings because we are image bearers of God. When Satan looks at you as a human being, he is reminded of God and he hates it. And he and his demons do everything they can to oppress us in our life. Uh, How is this boy being spiritually oppressed by this demon? Let's take a look at the symptoms. First of all, uh, symptom number one is his ability to communicate is under attack. Take a look at verse 17. In verse 17, we're told uh, by the father of this boy that uh, he tells Jesus, Teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. One of the wonderful ways in which we image God is in our capacity to use language. God is a speaking God. He employs words. He he communicates. And one of the ways that we image him is by our ability to employ language, our ability to communicate. How amazing is it? My dog can't tell me how it's, I don't have a dog, but the dog I had growing up, my dog could not ever tell me how it was feeling. If it ever started speaking, it would be a little freaky. Um, But we have the capacity 
to say what we think, to say how we feel. It's part of our dignity. The spiritual demon here is robbing this young man of his dignity of being able to communicate. Second symptom, he's lost control of his physical body. Take a look at verse 18. The father goes on and says, whenever this demon seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. Interestingly enough, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew describes this boy as having seizures. Uh, If if you know people who have uh, epileptic seizures, you know what terrible suffering they face when these seizures come on. This demon is bringing seizures on to this boy. We've been given a body as image bearers of God that is fearfully and wonderfully made, perfectly designed to uh, exercise dominion over creation, just like we're told we are to do in Genesis 1. Here the demons go after his physical body. Symptom number three uh, the, 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 the demon tries to destroy his soul. Take a look at verse 22. In verse 22, it's terrible. His father says to Jesus, it often casts him into fire and into water to destroy him. If the demon can't burn the boy to death, then maybe he'll drown him to death. But whatever he can do to destroy this young man's soul, he will do. Isn't that what Satan has sought to do from the very beginning? How did, why did he tempt Adam and Eve to take the fruit? So that he could bring death into the human equation. So that we would suffer the problem of death. And lastly, the last symptom is this demon is not responsive to any expert treatment. So if you take a look again at verse 18. Verse 18, the father tells Jesus, I asked your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able. Now, we should actually be surprised when we read that, that the disciples were not able to cast out the demon. Because do you remember when Jesus sent the disciples off back in chapter 6, off on their little short-term missions trip? And what did he do before he sent them off? He gave them authority to cast out demons and to be able to heal. And in uh, chapter uh, 6, verse 13, we're told that when they went out, they cast out many demons, And anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. They were experts at this issue of casting out demons. And yet here, they cannot pull it off. So we put all these symptoms together. What can we learn about life in this real world? We live in a broken world where unseen forces are at work against us in the spiritual realm. And even in the physical realm, every day that we wake up, we wake up into a world where the reality is spiritual warfare. And we ought not to overlook the fact, I never thought about this this week, but J.C. Ryle helped me to see it. Not overlook the fact that this demon went after a boy. That spiritual oppression happens in the very beginning stages of our human existence. Satan has no sense of decency. He even goes after children. Uh, J.C. Ryle in his commentary said, uh, we must labor to do good to our children, even from their earliest years. If Satan begins so early to do them harm, we must not be behind him in diligence to lead them to God. How soon in life a child becomes accountable and responsible is a difficult question perhaps for far sooner than many of us suppose. But one thing at all events is very clear. It is never too soon to strive to pray for the salvation of the souls of children 
never too soon to speak to them as moral beings and tell them of God and Christ and right and wrong. The devil, we may be quite sure, loses no time in endeavoring to influence the minds of young people. He begins with them even as a child. Let us work hard to counteract him. If young hearts can be influenced by Satan, they can also be filled with the Spirit of God. Well, that's the patient and his diagnosis and his symptoms. What about the cure? What will the cure be for this little boy? Uh, The father has just finished telling Jesus that his disciples and the scribes were unable to cast out the demon. How does Jesus reply in verse 19? Take a look. His reply may actually surprise us a little bit. It's one of exasperation. In verse 19, he answers and he says to the disciples, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Modern day translation might be, how long am I going to have to hold your guys' hands? How long am I going to have to be patient in bringing you along with me? When will you have faith? He calls them a faithless generation. Do you remember in, uh, in Exodus when Moses went up on the mountain of Mount Sinai? How long was he up there? 40 days it only took 40 days for, Israel, uh, uh, for Moses to go, for Israel to lose faith in God and begin worshiping golden calves. Here, in this account, Jesus has only been up on the mountain for one day, and the disciples have lost faith. So what is the answer? What is the cure? In verse 19, he gives the first step to the cure. Verse 19, he says to them, bring him to me. What is the cure? Jesus says, bring him to me. That is the first step in every need that we face in our lives. Every hardship that we undergo, every trial, every sorrow, every illness, every doubt, everything. The first step, lay it before Jesus. Bring it to Jesus. What was his invitation in the gospel of Matthew? Come to me. All you who are weary, heavy laden, I will give you rest. Come to me. Bring him to me. So in verse 20, the child is brought to him, and the demon knows that he is standing before the Lord, and he rages and gives this boy another seizure episode. In verse 20, it says, when the spirit saw him, Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Uh, Sometimes in the medical world, they say that you'll get worse before you get better. Uh, Sometimes when you start first receiving a treatment, you tell your doctor, I'm not feeling that well. And they they might say something like, that's just the meds doing their work. Well, here, the, the cure is being presented to the boy, and he's getting worse before he gets better, but the cure is just about to be applied. But we notice Jesus' bedside manner when this boy has this seizure, because take a look at verse 21. In verse 21, he shows tenderness to the father. Verse 21, he asks him, how long has this been happening to him? In the midst of this boy's suffering, he shows tenderness and concern uh, for this boy to the father. He's not just a transactional savior. He deals personally. Tell me how long this has been happening. He cares about the boy. And the 
The father probably couldn't believe it, but Jesus actually loves this boy more than that father loves this boy. Jesus cares about everything going on in the lives of our children and grandchildren, doesn't he? He cares about the little coughs. He cares about the bad grades. He cares about when their hearts have been broken by a boyfriend, a girlfriend. He cares when they don't make the team. Hannah and I have been praying for the last three days that Canaan would fill his diaper. Uh, how many prayers a day does God get about dirty diapers? And he cares about every single one of them, and he hears every single one of them. Jesus, in his tenderness, asked the father, how long has this been happening? Well, the, the, the father replies in verse 21 and says, from childhood. And then he makes his request in verse 22. He says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. It's a good request, but it's slightly misguided, isn't it? Where does the father's request go wrong? Jesus tells him where he, gets, uh, where he goes wrong in his request in verse 23. Jesus says to him, if you can, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Uh, Jesus is saying, it's not a matter of whether I'm capable. It's a matter of whether I am willing. In our prayers, we don't have to bother ever asking God if he can do something. He is capable of doing all things. The question is, is he willing? How did Jesus pray in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was about to, to face the agony of the cross? He prayed, Father, not if you are capable, but if you are willing, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Just like he just pointed out the disciples' lack of faith, he's pointing out this father's need to have faith in his ability and his willingness to save his son. Now, we have to be careful uh, when we read this verse because we cannot rip it out of context. In verse 23 here, when Jesus says, all things are possible for one who believes, uh, that verse, especially when applied to sick people and suffering people, uh, has been used in ways that end up really hurting and discouraging people in needless ways. Uh, for instance, um, I recently heard the story of a local boy uh, who goes to a Christian school around here who is blind. And uh, they, he was listening to a chapel speaker in his school, and afterwards he went to the chapel speaker. The chapel speaker very foolishly offered to heal the boy. And after he prayed for the boy and the boy's blindness was still there, he told the boy... Well, maybe someday you'll have enough faith for God to heal you. Uh, we ought not to do that. Um, that this, the, we read verses like this in the context of the whole Bible. Uh, God has promised to always work according to his straightforward promises. We can always ask him to work according to his promises. Anything outside of his straightforward promises is a matter of his gracious will. And there are plenty of instances that we see in the Bible where God was asked to heal someone and he chose in his divine wisdom not to. Think about Paul. Uh, Paul had his thorn in the flesh. He asked God three times to remove the thorn. And God said, no, because he had good purposes for that thorn in Paul's life. It wasn't a matter of Paul's lack of faith. It was that God had wiser plans for him. 
that Jesus is going to show from this example of the Father that he doesn't bless us based on the strength of our faith, but rather he blesses us on the object of our faith, that we have faith at all. Take a look at verse 24. He just told this, this father, anything is possible for one who believes. This father cries out to Jesus in his agony for his only son who's been suffering. He tells Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. He comes to Jesus honestly and says, I have faith, Lord. I believe that you can do this, but I know my faith could be stronger. I know I have doubts, but I do have faith. Please bless my faith. And this father is acknowledging the fact that he still has room to grow. And isn't he just like us? How often have we prayed for things and we discourage ourselves uh, because we think that our faith is too weak? It's not fundamentally the strength of our faith but the object of our faith that God blesses. John Owen had this great quote when he talked about faith. He wrote, you who have a weak faith, you have yet a strong Christ. You who have but weak and faint hold of Christ, he takes strong, sure, unconquerable hold of you. The Christian life is not so much about how strongly we hold on to God, but rather how strongly he holds on to us. He notices faith, even if it is weak. The question is, do our hearts like this father's heart, do we have a desire to grow out of our areas of unbelief? Well, will this father's faith uh, be recognized by Jesus? Yes. Uh, The cure is applied in verse 25, Jesus heals the boy. He tells the, 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 uh, the demon in verse 25, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And the boy is healed. Now, I was thinking this week, if we could talk to this man, if we could bring him here, probably most likely because the demon, when he had him, constantly was trying to throw him into fire, I would imagine that we would notice some pretty significant burn marks on this man as he even grew up into his adult years, that there would have been the scars of uh, the spiritual oppression that he faced. And he would have been able to point to his burn marks and say to us, you know, there was a time in my life where I was suffering greatly. I was under spiritual attack and I got thrown into fire time and time again. But one day this man came into my life. His name was Jesus. And he told that demon to get gone and to never come back again. And I tell you, I was delivered that moment and I've never suffered spiritually in that degree ever again. And my burn marks are a testimony to the fact that Jesus saves. In the same way, friends, that the scars that are spiritual the burn marks of your past life before you came to Christ are a testimony that Jesus saves. What we're seeing with how, how Jesus heals this boy and delivers this boy is a picture of how he delivers us from our sin. 
that he takes the penalty of sin and he casts it as far as the east is from the west. He says, get gone and never come back again. And just like Romans 8, what can separate us from the love of Christ? Once we have received his salvation, we are secure. We never have to worry about the penalty of sin coming back again. John, in uh, his writing, says in 1 John 4, 5, 4, this is the victory that overcomes the world. What? Our faith. When we come to Christ in faith asking for his deliverance, he delivers. The cure is faith in Christ. Well, we took a look at the patient. We took a look at the cure. Now let's look at the case review. I didn't know this before. I, I, I'm in deep waters because uh, I had some people who were actually in the medical field after the first service come up and tell me where I got some things wrong. But let's just pretend that I'm right. Um, apparently, in the medical profession, there are case reviews after uh, a patient um, uh, has, if there's a case of malpractice or a patient was lost or a case could have been handled better, they gather together to review the case to see what could have been done better. Well, in verse 28, we see the disciples and Jesus have a little case review after the case is closed. Take a look at verse 28. In verse 28, they had entered the house and his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? What did we do wrong? We, we, we cast out many demons, Lord. Why could we not do this one? What did we mess up? Jesus tells them where the malpractice came in, where they got the diagnosis wrong, where they uh, did not apply the correct treatment. In verse 29, he says to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Where did they mess up? They failed to pray. Now, all of us know if someone collapses and is unresponsive, what is the first thing that you're supposed to do? Oh, geez, I hope I never collapse and I'm unresponsive. <laughs> what are you supposed to do? You call 911. Yeah, call 911. You call the people who are able, have the knowledge and wisdom and ability to be able to actually help in the situation before you apply any care yourself. Uh, actually, I learned this week that in certain cases, you can be liable to negligence if you're assuming care for someone and you actually fail to call 911. Point taken when it comes to prayer. When you are in need, when you seek to help someone, step number one, call upon the Lord. Ask for him, the one who has the knowledge, has the wisdom, has the power and ability to actually help. These disciples, they were not acting in faith. And it expressed, their faithlessness was expressed through the fact that they did not pray. They relied on themselves. They said to themselves, well, we've had a lot of experience in this. We've cast out lots of demons. This will be no different. They relied on their own wisdom. Uh, I just wish I could have seen the, the, the argument between the scribes and the disciples. The disciples are probably saying, listen, we've been walking with Jesus for three years. I think we know what to do in this situation. This is how he said we're supposed to do it. We know we're the wise ones. We've got it. They did not trust in the Lord. 
They relied upon their own knowledge and their own ability. Tim Keller uh, has a great quote in his book about prayer. Uh, He talks that when we fail to pray, there's something deeper going on in our hearts. He says to fail to pray is not to merely break some religious rule. It is a failure to treat God as God. It is a sin against his glory. Whenever we get into a situation and we fail to pray, we're saying, essentially, we're believing in that moment, I'm God. I know how to do this. I want the glory. I can handle this. I was thinking about ways that I daily do not treat God as God by failing to pray. Uh, Getting up to face a new day in the morning, first thing out of bed. It's the first thing on my mind. I should pray that the Lord would give me wisdom for today. I actually did a Google search. You gotta pray for me that these kind of things go into my mind. Uh, I did a, a Google search about how many days I have lived. You actually, there's a website where you can calculate this. It'll calculate for you how many days you've lived. I've apparently lived 11,357 days. That's a lot of days. I think I can handle another day having lived 11,000 days. But Jesus says, no, you actually don't know how to handle today. You need the wisdom of God. You need to pray for the wisdom of God. How about going into work for the 5,737th time? How about resolving a marital conflict or dealing with a misbehaving child? Well, we've figured out our problems and issues before. Uh, we've, we've, we've dealt with misbehaving children before. We can do it again. How about failure to pray when you're faced with temptation? Failure to pray when you're coming to church preparing your heart to worship. Failure to pray when you're about to stand behind a pulpit and preach to the congregation. How about failure to pray when you open your Bible to a passage that you've read dozens of times and you think that you've got it down by now and there's really nothing new, nothing relevant for you there anymore. The more experience and familiarity we have with something, the more it should lead us to pray even harder against self-reliance. What does what a friend we have in Jesus say? Uh, Oh, what peace we often forfeit, and oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. What is the diagnosis of this life? We live in a world where spiritual warfare is the reality. Uh, These forces that are at work among us that seek to oppress us. And the reality of that, the reality of evil, the reality of temptation, the reality of sin should drive us to the only cure that scripture provides. And that is faith in Christ's ability to deliver, to sustain, to uphold us through all of it. Christ's power and grace to take care of us in every situation. And we ought, just like the Father prayed to Jesus, I believe, we ought to pray the second part of the prayer each and every day. Help my unbelief. To grow stronger and stronger in our trust and faith in Christ, step by step, day by day, moment by moment. 
waking every day, humbling ourselves, getting rid of self-reliance, and not failing to pray, but seeking the power and blessing that only God can give if we would just ask for.